Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Jam, a weekly podcast dedicated to analysing the week's news and top topics through a political science lens. I'm Mike, joined as ever by Jeeve. Jeeve, how's it going? Um, it's going okay. Like physically, Michael, I'm I'm very hot. Uh, mentally, I think I've recovered from the Euros. Um, I'm not ready to talk about it yet, but I would say it's definitely getting better. Kind of, you know, enjoying friends again, getting outside, reconnecting uh, with nature and my surroundings. But yeah, we'll we'll get there, buddy. Um, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm in the same place, right? I'm I'm very very hot. Like honestly. I'm there one of those British people that always complains about the weather. So, like, when it's raining, I'm complaining. When it's hot, I'm complaining. But this is... I feel like I'm justified in my complaints right now. Like, honestly, it's, like, 30 degrees. There's no breeze whatsoever. It is ridiculous. Like, my face looks like I've, like, washed it with water or something. It's not like, dried it. Like, it's just so sweaty and sticky. It's unreal. And, yeah, I'm, I'm not enjoying that. For our listeners, I should say, we can see each other. And Michael is glistening at this point in time, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> honestly it's not a very pleasant experience do you know what it is for me it doesn't take much to make me sweat like i left my house yesterday and just like gosh it's like just water just oozing from like every orifice in my face like, <laughs> it's ridiculous so so yeah it's, if it can get cooler like, just a tiny bit cooler i'll be happy and i won't complain anymore and yeah i'm in the same place as you with the euros i'll see uh i was very bullish on our last podcast about the euros i was i was talking about it coming home about it being in transit, you know, about to come home and all of this stuff. But it didn't come home, unfortunately. You know, it's not home yet. It's uh, got lost. The parcel got lost. We're going to try and uh, retrieve that in time for Qatar 2022. But, uh, yeah, it's one of those things. Football doesn't come home uh, again. (laughs) We should be used to it by now. Uh, And on today's podcast, we are delighted to be joined by a special guest. We are joined by the comedian, I'm sure you all know him, it's Nish Kumar. Nish, how are you today? Well, I'm hot as hell, guys. (laughs) The the video chat screen, for the benefit of the listeners, is, I mean, it's three sweating brown men. It really really is. Yeah, no, it's... uh, it's very warm, um, but um, you know, it, uh, broadly, I'm uh, I'm fine. I'm, uh, happy Freedom Day to you both. It's freedom. It's of course it's Freedom Day uh, as we, the day that we record it. It's the day that uh, the pandemic ended. Um, yes, it's, it's all done, guys. It's all done. Let's pack. Let's pack it away. COVID just disappeared today. We beat the pandemic like uh, Saint George uh, defeated Adolf Hitler. If I, <laughs> I know this is a political science podcast. So I want to make sure that I get my knowledge in early. Uh, early <laughs> that was a great historical event. You're right. When Saint George absolutely biffed Hitler, that was what? What a day for all of us. What a was. time to be alive that was. Honestly, <laughs> what a time to be alive. I remember it like a. <laughs> I'm glad we've recaptured that World War II spirit. Yeah. Freedom is for all of us. <laughs> you know, when it came to that particular point, did Hitler get resurrected and like take on St. George again? Because I feel like when we lock down in five weeks, I'm going to struggle for an analogy. It's going to be very um, difficult. It's going to be very difficult. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be very, very difficult. I think, unfortunately, the longer this goes on, the more you realise it was the wrong war analogy, and actually, it was George W. Bush in front of the mission accomplished about it. That's that's all. That's all the news has been for the last for the last year and a half. It's just one long press conference. On a on a warship 
with the mission mission accomplished banner emblazoned behind Boris Johnson. <laughs> so if you haven't gathered already, Nish is obviously very, very funny. And as a result, we, we brought Nish on to pod today to discuss the role humour plays in politics. So Nish, you obviously you you you're someone who your your comedy obviously obviously dabbles in politics, right? You you discuss politics when it comes to your comedy. So how important do you think humour is when it comes to politics and political discourse? I mean, I don't know. I'm sort of hoping you guys can tell me because the part of me feels like it's not particularly important at all. Um, but like, I think with for what I always, the comedy that I do now is the comedy that I aspired to do when I was a young person. And, you know, I grew up watching a lot of, you know, like... Um, because the joy of comedy is that it can be anything. It can be very about very serious subjects. It can be completely frivolous. It can be rooted in reality. It can be completely surreal. Um, and that's the pleasure of it. And I always enjoyed the broad spectrum that comedy offered. Um, but I was always very drawn to stand up like Chris Rock, who would take things that were happening in the world and the news and turn them into jokes. And it became, for me, when I was a kid, it was a way of sort of, processing what had happened in the news it wasn't necessarily a way of you know I still got my news and my information from news and information sources but the way that I sort of processed that was through the lens of comedy and so I think if I, I think that's really mainly what you can aspire to as a comedian is like help pe- helping people cope with what's happening in the news I think that's a really good way to put it. I've always thought with hu- like humour generally, it kind of ends up resting on the turn. In order to get the turn, you have to understand what's going on. Yeah. So like Stephen Colbert used to have this great line. He goes, uh, Stephen Colbert, for those who don't know, is this kind of uh, parody of like a right-wing shock jock like Bill mm. O'Reilly, I suppose now like Tucker Carlson. And he always used to say, we don't let facts get in the way of truth. And it's <laughs> completely, it gets what a right-wing shock jock is, right? It's like, I know the truth. I don't give a damn. Like, that's what he would do. And you have to understand the entire thing to get it. Or, like, uh, we have to cut child nutrition programs so we leave a future for our kids. Like, it's just every single time. And in order to get the turn, you have to get the background. It just kind of goes through with this brilliant uh, simplicity. And also, like, engage with an audience that otherwise won't necessarily be reading the garden all the time. Like, yeah, it's quite right. nice. Yeah, yeah I, I, think that's, that. I think that's... I was, Sorry, I, was gonna add, I was just going to add to what you said earlier, Nish, about like how we interpret events. I think comedy is really, really important to that. Like, and I think often a lot of political humour is about the governance of the day, and that's because it's generally like the best comedy. I always think is the comedy that punches up. So it's less fun to kind of be the kind of sycophant who's always siding with the government in your comedy, for example. That wouldn't be that funny, um, especially with governments we've had in recent years. Right? It wouldn't be particularly funny to be like siding with a conservative government have presided over austerity and, you know, uh, quite happy to play culture war, all of these sorts of things. And yeah, like comedy can be so important the way we interpret events. So like, I know when I was growing up, I used to watch Mock the Week a lot. And yeah. that was kind of really my first exposure to politics. Like I remember you used to be on there a lot. Um, Dara O'Brien obviously hosted it. Frankie Boyle was on there. Um, so many like great comedians were on that show. And you often would have, a, you discuss politics on that show. And I was like maybe 13 at the time just kind of understanding the world around me and hearing you crack jokes about like Blair and Bush and Brown and all of these sort of things really like that was like oh, this is really interesting so yeah I think comedy like because you you wanted us to give you an answer I actually think comedy yeah. especially now because I feel like comedy is a dynamic process where 
even someone on Twitter, like you don't have to be like a someone who does stand up. Like a random person on Twitter can be a comedian now. I could send out a funny quick tweet. You can retweet it. Everyone can retweet it. It gets like a thousand retweets. It gets shared on Instagram and Facebook. It gets discussed on a daily talk show. And then comedians are talking about this funny joke. And it becomes a dynamic process where even we can become quite central to kind of comedy now. So, yeah, I do think it is really, really important. Yeah, it becomes... It's it's interesting because it has... It sort of... It, 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 Twitter and all the social media stuff definitely opens out a whole new audience and a whole new sort of set of creatives in terms of writing comedy about the news. And yeah, it's, there is something really exciting about that right now, but you know, it's less exciting that somebody who was on British paddle shows at the turn of the century is now prime minister. So it's really, <laughs> it's really, it's, it's, it's swings and roundabouts with politics as influence in comedy on the right. Nish, maybe that's a sign of things it to is. come to you. It's a sign of things to come to you, that Nish. <laughs> that's that's how we'll know we're completely fucked. <laughs> the day you see me standing outside number ten, that's when you know. That's that's it. The West has gone. The West has lost. At least you'll be laughing though, Nish. You'll be all right. Like we at the moment, it seems so grim and you know, unfunny. At the moment, at least that will be laughing our way to hell. I think that's the interesting thing where someone like where I think I think that's part of the problem of Boris Johnson as a prime minister is that he he sort of can't really understand why people aren't laughing anymore. And, Mm. you know, the context in which he is bumbling his way through a speech has massively changed. And if he's bumbling his way through reading the auto cue on Havagot News View, that's obviously very funny. But if he's bumbling his way through reading a speech about when restrictions are going to be lifted at the time of a global pandemic. That is a lot less funny. It is a lot less funny. I suppose there is to some extent, like a distinction between vapid mockery and satire, right? So I think Boris Johnson has always done vapid mockery. And what that kind of ends up doing is it kind of distracts and devalues any situation and it makes you laugh but it doesn't make you learn anything. And to some extent, it serves to um, kind of reduce your political knowledge, right? Like Boris Johnson famously, I'm going to shake everyone's hand in the COVID ward. Anyone who has a form to ships Northern Ireland could throw it in the bin. Like for him, like it's making um, not just light of a situation, but, you know, just almost ignoring it to make everyone laugh. Whereas satire, I suppose, on the other hand, is in a weird sense, like inherently hopeful. Like you are making people laugh, but you're doing it by by casting judgment on the situation and saying how things could be better, like what the reality could be. Like Boris Johnson never casts satire upon a situation. He just makes it completely empty. Yeah, that's right. And I think you I think a lot of the best comedy about politics comes not necessarily from a place of nihilism, but from a place of crushed optimism. You know, like I always think that about the um, the episode of The Simpsons where it wasn't even an episode. I think they made a Simpsons advert because George H.W. Bush had made a speech. It, this would be in sort of, eight, sort of 89, 90. And he said that he wanted American families to be more like the Waltons and less like The Simpsons. And The Simpsons made a little advert where they were watching that on the television and then it cut back to the family and Bart Simpson said, we're like the Waltons. We're waiting for an end to the Great Depression too. And it's like <laughs> that 
I always think that's a like really good example of where the sort of that it comes from a place of like it, it comes from a sort of place of dashed optimism and like there's a kind of hope that things might get better rather than just a nihilistic like everything's terrible so there's no point in anything this it doesn't seem that doesn't seem to be as funny to me yeah it wouldn't be like i think satire is like what you even said it's about you kind of question the political and social order but you also hope for a any kind of and through kind of humor you kind of point out what could be different and what could be better and that's that's really really fun that's why again a lot of the comedy a lot of the best comedy is comedy that's like opposed to governments like so you maybe you describe a government decision for example and lots of that is where you see like some some of the best comedy i think one of the best like so some of the best comedy i've seen in recent years has been like little short twitter videos that we see going around now like munya who does the, the skits about the, the government yeah. for example i think he does satire so well like yeah, really, he's really well he's amazing and it's little one minute clips and the, the beauty of it is his clips come out like two hours after the event has happened. the thing that i don't understand is how he gets the production values like it's, it's like the production values are absolutely insane yeah it's unbelievable what he does like the matt hancock one came out like three hours after the news broke and it was just so so funny <laughs> I think Munia was the guy that leaked the tape. That's my only theory about. That's my only theory about how he can possibly have knocked that out as quickly as he did. Mike, that's my conspiracy. That's my like. That's my like five G <laughs> conspiracy. It's that Munia was the one who got the tape of Hancock grabbing that lady's butt. <laughs> And it's so much more effective than an opposition statement, right? Like, that's the thing everyone remembers. And they remember all the things that went wrong with it as well. Like yeah. the PPE shortage, for example, in, in a two-minute skit. It was fantastic. I just think, I, do, I don't know what pro-government satire looks like. And I think it's very strange when people get very excited about... I mean, listen, they're not really getting excited about it. It's just, you know, it's just... It's, it's just people perpetuating this idea that... Um, conservatives are the victims of some infernal conspiracy that's somehow managed to avoid them losing any elections in 10 years like it's not really anything to do with anything based in reality but if we were to take it as like a good faith critique and that you know satire is unevenly biased against the governments of the day i don't know what like pro-government political comedy looks like you know when i was a kid all the jokes that were being made were about Blair. And the thick of it was a show that was specifically designed. It wasn't, you know, they never mentioned the parties in the thick of it, but I think that was feels more like a deliberate decision to keep a sitcom in a more kind of timeless space. So you can still go back to the thick of it and it still feels very fresh and relevant as a piece of uh, creative writing, as a, you know, as a scripted comedy. But that was absolutely about Alistair Campbell. And that was about the new Labour spin machine. And then the the film, which I think is, uh, you know, is an, I, I, I rewatched the film again for the first time in a couple of years. And it, it really holds up. It's a brilliant film, a comedy film. But it's about the lead up to the war in Iraq. And I, at the time, I don't seem to remember anybody going, guys, can somebody have a dig at Michael Howard, please? Can we please? <laughs> can somebody please absolutely stick it to IDS in this film? You know, it's it, it's it seems like a really strange response to go. This political comedy is too aggressively critiquing the government of the day. 
and it always i mean even in that era i'm trying to remember the other thing that was really popular although i would say not hugely funny was little britain right and little britain took aim at all the groups that new labor were trying to help like the disabled yeah that's right yeah yeah uh, the working class immigrants like that was the group it was hitting because it is countercultural, it's counter hegemonic there's nothing that funny about um punching down which is why i think yeah. little britain fundamentally wasn't that funny yeah but yeah it's also true to say that you don't have I don't know how you have, like you say, how do you laugh at someone or how do you laugh with someone in power? You take the piss yeah. out of the person who's like uh, aggrandizing themselves. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you're a kid, obviously there are weird jokes that you find funny and that kids have a very absurdist sense of humor. But also one of the things that kids use kids use humor to do is to like undermine their teachers and their parents and any kind of like any kind of authority figure. And, you know, it, it, that's sort of, I feel like, what's at the core of a lot of political satire. Like, it's easy to it's easier to laugh at somebody that's having a good time of it, you know? Like, yeah, it's, sure. like, if somebody falls over and, you know, if somebody trips over and does a comedy pratfall in the street, that's funny. But it's even funnier if that person is wearing a business suit and top hat. <laughs> Anything that like undermines someone's status is always going to be incredibly funny. Yeah, again, it goes back that... to my point about kind of controlling. So I think we spoke about it last time we spoke in this about kind of controlling the narrative and maybe the stories that are told about you. So often marginalized groups, you know, minorities, women, the jokes are at, you know, our expense. So yeah, we there are stereotypes about our groups, about you know, black people, about Asian people, about women. There are negative stereotypes. And often comedy can be really important in terms of countering those. And actually you can really counter these dominant stereotypes that, about marginalised groups. That That's why, again, the most effective comedy is comedy that punches down. Because, yeah, again, who'd want to listen to, like, comedy where people are belittling, you know, the most marginalised members of society? I don't, I don't know who that's appealing to, really. It's just, it, it, it's weird. I mean, listen, I do think there is an, I do think there is an audience for that. I just don't think it's the predominant, I don't think that most people find that stuff funny. There's definitely, yeah. I mean, Rod Liddle's getting paid for doing something. <laughs> you know like, like he's not I, a funny guy well I, but I do genuinely believe that there are people who think that Rod Liddle is very funny I I I, I think they're I think they're in they're in quite a small minority but they're uh, but the, uh, the point that I think is important is that the majority of people in a comedy audience the comedian or the person who's doing the comedy has to find some way of like undermining their own status in order to make themselves into, you know, be something that's that an audience wants to sit and listen to. Um, but like, I definitely think there is like, there is an audience for comedy that exists purely as a way of consolidating the status quo. I just think it's not a particularly big audience. And that's yeah. when those people get very frustrated when they kind of go, well, where is the comedy for us? And you're like, it would exist if there was enough of an audience for it. But the reality is, there's quite a small audience and they all read, you know, the spectator and they can read Rod Little <laughs> making his horrible jokes about, you know, and, and I use jokes in the loosest possible term. They can, they can, they can read Rod Little squatting down over a piece of paper and curling out what passes for an opinion in these day, this day and age. <laughs> but the, the, the reality is the majority of the comedy audience, regardless of their political affiliation, don't want to see that. If they did, it would be there would be, you know comedy is quite a sort of I mean listen there's access issues and 
it's probably definitely become more of a closed shop, particularly in terms of your economic background, uh, as you know, cost of living and stuff has increased. But the truth is, comedy is broadly is still quite a sort of um, if there's an audience for it, there's a it'll exist basically, you know. And the truth is, there just isn't that big an audience for pro government comedy that kicks against you know because the public's tastes have changed there was an audience for it in the 1970s you know Jim Davidson would was a huge comedian who would go on television and do things like Chalky which was an explicit unambiguous attack on black people living in the country and there was an audience for it but all that happened is that the sort of social and cultural mores changed and now we're in a position where if somebody did that on stage, the majority of people would go, that's really not funny. And I, I think that the, you know, it's it's just quite a self-selecting thing in the end. Yeah, I suppose it doesn't feel funny to make fun of someone for who they are rather than what they do, right? That's the first yeah, thing yeah, I yeah. say. And secondly, I suppose it's more of a question to you two, but like, is Jeremy Clarkson less funny because there's a million people going to food banks and actually there are floods that have destroyed thousands of people's lives in Western Europe? Like, is that now less funny because there isn't a Labour government in power? Is there less of a, an audience for that? Because it feels like it, but I'm not sure. I think there's a huge thing like that that's actually happened in the last 20 years. I think the... I certainly think that there was a period in the late 90s and the early 2000s where under the, you know, Blair government, and it persisted in the States, particularly, I think, with the election of Obama, where there was this idea that ironic prejudice was fair game in comedy because we had all accepted that there were certain social groups that were that were protected from prejudice. And we all accepted that racism was bad and sexism was bad and homophobia was bad. <laughs> And so there were, and that's the comedy that now is being reappraised, and a lot of people are going, "I don't know if this sort of stuff was, uh, this sort of stuff was okay." Because I think there was a real rush to want to say prejudice is over, so we can do sort of ironic racism and sexism, because we all agree that this is wrong, and so we can we can push on from there. But I think what what we've realised in the last few years is that those prejudices has had not gone away, and you know, actually in terms of the sort of mainstream, I mean, you get, it's a very weird situation, right? Because the what a comedy audience expects seems to be out of step with where the, where the government is and where the majority of the sort of op-ed pieces in newspapers are at in terms of the political temperature, right? This stuff said in the context of an opinion piece in the Telegraph that if you tried at a comedy club would really bomb, you know, like, a, a, you know, a, a, like a Clarkson column or a Rod Liddell column. And I think it's just like, it's just a funny illustration of where Britain is at the moment, that there are these, that the country has these kind of two faces effectively. Uh, and that's not to say that all comedy is a hotbed of progressive thought. But certainly there is a sense that you can't black up or you can't, you know, you can't be racist or sexist or homophobic without at least some, uh, you know, some sort of 
idea that what you're doing is ironic. But whereas much less ambiguous hate speech, for want of a better term, is completely acceptable in uh, opinion columns in major newspapers. And it's like, it's just a funny illustration. I think, I guess we're all thinking about this a lot at the moment, because how is this both the country of the England football team and the racist abuse suffered by the England football team? And comedy, it feels like, is also in that kind of strange space where if you look at a lot of the comedy that's really popular, it does feel like it has a kind of progressive bent to it. But that also then feels out of step with what's going on in op-ed pieces and what's going on from the front bench of the government, really. And so it is interesting. Britain, and I think particularly England, is sort of caught between two identities at the moment. I think that's a really important point, actually, because humour is obviously an effective communication tool. And we tap into kind of social and cultural norms and symbols to to kind of convey humour sometimes. And because Britain is so divided, there is this competing sense of what people want in their comedy. So you might be describing this as like this kind of like left wing um, BBC tool or something, like when you were in your when you were doing your show as well, because of you know the fact that your your comedy was you know, it was quite progressive. It was quite you know anti government. Yeah. And some people had an appetite for that, but there's some others who actually don't have an appetite for that, you know, and they think that, you know, maybe some right-wing comedians are being, you know, marginalised because they don't fit in with this progressive image. So I do think there is this kind of competing vision of Britain that is, you can see the tension when it comes to comedy, for sure. But I think what's interesting is a lot of those people, uh, you know, are it's interesting because a lot of the people that are representing the kind of alternative view are, I think part of the problem is there's a lot of, you know, I mean, I don't really know how to phrase this, but like there's a lot of, it feels like there's a disproportionate power that's been allocated to actually quite a small section of the country. And that kind of manifests itself by who is, controlling the editorial line of the majority of newspapers and our electoral system as well which turns 13 million votes into an 80 seat parliamentary majority and a landslide election win and so it feels like we're living in this time where there's there's a there's a small group of people that wield quite a disproportionate amount of power and influence and I, you know, it's 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 just very interesting to me that there is this idea that there is this kind of cultural cabal of left wing people that like it's like this sort of like weird minotaur that has the head of me and Ash Saka and Aaron Jones that's like <laughs> that's like coming to like tear down your flags and you know turn your local pub into a gender neutral toilet. But like, it's <laughs> it, it, it's fascinating to me that that viewpoint is not represented at all in almost any major newspaper in the country. You know, that, I think it's so interesting. You're like, there's the Guardian, the Mirror, and the Sunday, the Times Investigative Journalism Unit that's done amazing work in digging up what's been going on with the pandemic. The rest of the entire print media. <laughs> It's basically sort of Pravda for landlords. Like, that is... 
and it's so interesting that people are like, oh, the because we, we do it all the time. We all do it. Those of us who consider ourselves to be on the left or progressive or whatever, we all sit there going, God, you know, it really is like we really are like in control. It feels like we've swallowed a f narrative that bears no resemblance to anything that could be reasonably described as fucking reality. Yeah, but we feel good about it. I think. <laughs> one, thing, one thing I would say is that like, okay, the, I think the, the more worrying turn about this and the more worrying turn about, um, for actually for want of a better word, there's cancel culture. Like you were of course canceled off the, the BBC because you were too, uh, too left-wing and too progressive as it were. And too critical of the government the worrying thing is that actually for democracy you do need to have comedy like the people who don't like comedy are authoritarians like donald trump can't take a joke yeah right victor orban he has a can't terrible take a terrible sense joke. of humor donald trump yeah yeah the, the same as um jim davidson you know to yeah. some respects like yeah. just mocking people who are who are less fortunate right because as soon as you i suppose in that particular clique it becomes this idea of well um they are above reproach or criticism or critique. And once you start to laugh at them, you begin to kind of bring down that kind of facade of power. And the worry is that actually you see these tendencies today, uh, like to be blunt within the front bench of this party in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime for sure. Like I've never seen, like you said, I never saw Tony Blair criticize a comedian for having a pop at him at all, or have I got news for you? This feels very new. Yeah, and I mean, well, look, the great thing that's happened in the last few weeks is that the what the conversation around the England football team and the way that several of the players have sort of conducted themselves has sort of, I don't know, has kind of pulled the sort of, it's sort of pulled the veil down from everybody's eyes about the, com the conversation about race in this country. Because, I, I, I mean, we, I've, you know, we can all do we've been trying to do jokes about Boris Johnson's racism for five years and just nothing has come of it. But for the first time, he's genuinely having to answer questions about the Piccaninnies and Watermelon Smiles comment. He's He was he had to answer questions about that in Parliament. He then had to answer a question about it in uh, the press conference after he gave that levelling up speech, which just seemed to be him just saying the words levelling up and then catch up over and over again. But, like, <laughs> that's... <laughs> And what I think it's also revealed is actually the there is a lot more, you know, the majority of this country supports taking the knee. The majority of the country or the majority of people that are responding to these polls do support, you know, taking the knee and do support, you know, at least like vaguely progressive policies around the issue of race. And I do think that I think that it's been like a depressing few years for progressive people but I think one of the things we've got to remember and I'm, I'm really talking to myself more than anyone else here is that actually there's a lot of systems in place that are designed to keep a disproportionate amount of power in the hands of some fairly reactionary people and that includes our electoral system but it also it includes the way that the press is structured now the concern is if the electoral system is going to continue to disproportionately benefit the Conservative Party. And if they're going to, uh, you know, pass laws like voter ID, which are going to disproportionately affect groups that are likely to vote Labour. And if they're going to continue to squash dissent by privatising Channel 4 
and continuing to exert undue influence on the BBC. Whatever's going on with Jess Brammer's appointment at the moment feels mm -hmm. incredibly concerning. The concern is that that sort of minority rule is going to get is going to be even more bolstered. Um, and things are going and like an even smaller group is going to wield an even more disproportionate amount of power and no amount of jokes are going to get us out of that and uh, as far as I can see all that's going to have to happen is Tyrone Mings is going to have to lead a coup <laughs> <laughs> Nish Nish, you're going to be leading it as well. Remember, your talk show, your talk show career is a pathway to politics now. <laughs> Tyro Mings and Nish Kumar leading, leading, leading the coup is what I want to see. Jeez Louise. It's, yeah, it, that, and that's sometimes where I think, you know, like that's sometimes where I think you see the kind of limits of, of comedy. When you see how much... Actual impact the football team is able to have. Um, it's, you realise that actually a lot of what I do and a lot of what a lot of political comedians like me do is not really change people's minds, but actually give some relief to people who came in already agreeing with you. At least it helps to elucidate a, a point, though, yeah. right? Like you could be vaguely aware of something and not realise how. Um, terrible it actually is until it's confronted with that particular moment right so i think yesterday i was i was really hung over for research for this pod i decided to like rewatch like parts of the mash report and there's a great bit where like rachel paris is talking about um the refugees and the woke culture and she says something like uh yeah don't care about drowning refugees you arrogant twat or something yeah and it's yeah. like a really brilliant moment where it like uh brings that moment to light and exactly what's going on in like a very informative way in a very short amount of time. Yeah, there's lots of good examples of comedy being that I use to uh, clarify quite serious points or like get a really quite serious point across. I don't think there's a, but when people talk about, I saw another discussion about white privilege on one of those discussion shows. And I just thought nobody has ever covered it better than when Chris Rock said, uh, none of, none of, no white person in this room would change places with me and I'm rich. Like, mm. I don't think anyone has ever covered it in that, like, pithier way. Um, uh, you know, and, like, it can use... It can definitely sum up stuff. Like, this, you know, I think, like... Um, and I'm happy to talk about this because I wasn't involved in it in any way, shape, or form. But, like, Rachel's sort of piece about the Me Too movement, which, mm. uh, without question, is the reason we were on <laughs> yeah for as long as we were... <laughs> there's a bit in it right at the top of the thing where she says and again this is like he sort of goes back to like you have to understand all the variables like it, it, that's important when you're telling a joke about politics but that's important in any joke like the structure of any joke the the feed line the setup has to be completely clear and in a piece like that you need a joke at the top that clarifies what the perspective is going to be and settles the audience so the audience knows what the variables are and she had this thing where she would say, she said to me, isn't it terrible? Because now the Me Too movement has happened, men can't do anything without being accused of sexual harassment. And I say, I don't think that's the case, Rachel. And she says, no, it isn't, but it's fun to pretend. And I sometimes <laughs> think that, I think about that line, it's fun to pretend a lot of the time when you see some of the protestations about the Me Too movement. And I, you know, and it works really nicely for that bit as well, because it's a kind of nice joke to open 
the thing because it, it sort of gets a laugh anyway but it really clears up what the perspective of the piece is going to be and then you can go and make more and more extreme you know I can't, I can't remember all the variants of that but it's like you know this like it ends up with her like explaining to men that you can't like put your dick in a woman's sandwich or whatever but you can't you have to build up to the more extreme elements of the comedy in that but yeah it is a really useful way of summarizing um a perspective on things i think there's probably people that still really think sarah palin said i can see russia from my house because she became sort of so entwined in tina fey's parody of her um yeah. i think though on that point though that's that is literally what she says does she on i thought that was on the tina fey parody the thing that's so brilliant about it is that she says um everything sarah palin says i just says it again I don't think, I'm not sure if Palin ever specifically said I can see. There's certainly like elements of Tina Fey's caricaturing of Palin that have superseded anything Palin actually said or did. Mm. But it's definitely, it was it's a useful way of summarising what she was like, you know, as a person. Yeah, I think parody is really effective as well. I think it really is effective when it comes to like comedy sometimes. I think politicians care a lot about comedy as well. We spoke about authoritarians. Like obviously authoritarians, a lot of them have this kind of strong man image. They don't want to be undermined. You know, they're powerful men, they're leaders of the nation. And, you know, being parodied is probably not what they want. They don't want to be parodied by Nish Kumar on the MASH report, for example. Um, and they care about how they're perceived. And as I said, when I was growing up, I watched a lot of comedy shows and they were quite important to, and for my perception of, 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 political stories at the time of politicians at the time as well and it, i think politicians are also aware of how powerful tall humor and satire is like you often see especially now i think with the whole like twitter generation where you can get like a, a little quote out on twitter and i can get loads of retweets and it can do the rounds and you can maybe generate a yeah. meme for example i think comedians politicians are aware of how effective humor is as a kind of a communication tool so they are willing to kind of dip their toe in and crack a few jokes and really get a few really witty one-liners out that could do the rounds on, on social media and in the news, etc. So yeah, I think, you know, politicians are also aware of just how powerful and effective it can be to, to be funny. Yeah. And I think as a comedian, you've got, to, if you're doing comedy about the news, you've got to really make sure that you don't fall into the trap of, you know, I mean, there's no danger of this with me, but I don't, you definitely don't want to be in a situation where you're like, it looks like where well, you're doing something that politicians are too happy about. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't want, you know, you don't want it to be, you don't, you want to be making jokes that make some, give some sense that the politician involved or the t target of them is uncomfortable, is uncomfortable with them. You, you don't want to be in a situation where, you know, uh, sort of towards the end of spitting images run, there's this rumour that like MPs are really excited to have their puppets made. And I think if that is the case, then you've slightly, you've slightly failed in what you're sort of attempting to do. I think if you're doing political satire, you don't want people to be too thrilled with your caricaturing of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, it's a really important point. But it's not satire then, is it really? Yeah. I think that that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's like, yeah. You're just saying, well done, buddy. Give them a pat on the back. Yeah, exactly. Which might be nice for them, but not 
probably great for the ratings, yeah. I suppose. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's like we said, we no one wants to be that kind of sycophant for the government who's constantly... Yeah, like, who would want to listen to a, a positive caricature or parody of Boris Johnson? It'd be a, it which wouldn't be funny. <laughs> um, I just so, don't know what the, like... Yeah, I just... Uh, what's the punchline? You know, I, I, I don't know I what the punchline is. Yeah, I just don't know what the punchline is to that. Like, I, I just don't know what the... Because also, it's like... You know, the, we've been having these conversations for years and years, right, about Johnson specifically, really since he, I mean, maybe it's just the age that I was, but really since he became London mayor, where you're like, this joke is not funny anymore. You know, like he's he's the mayor of London. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen is this like devastating legacy of his time as a mayor with, you know, which sort of amounts to millions of pounds spent on a bridge that doesn't exist, you know, and it's like, it's you know all that stuff but now how how do you i don't i don't know whether it's comedy or not i don't know how you speak in defense of this government like and it's and him as a prime minister because like a hundred thousand people died you know like and they certainly all of those people did not need to die and so if it comes to making jokes about boris johnson i don't know how you even start to do something that could even you know, when when he's on the... I saw some, like, clip of him the other day and he was, like, driving, pretending to drive a car badly or something like that. And I just remember thinking, like, you presided over one of the worst per capita death tolls in the world. This is, you know, one of the richest countries in the world. And we couldn't allocate sufficient resources to protect the most vulnerable people in this society. Like, and I don't know how now... You go back to being like, good old Boris. <laughs> what's, what, what's he like? I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a bloke that killed a bunch of people. Okay. <laughs> it's like, I don't know where, I don't know where you would even start in, you know, in, in doing jokes that somehow were designed to like defend him or any of his policies. And do you know the annoying thing as well? Yeah. So I was gonna say the annoying thing as well is I think he thinks he's really funny, like because he often he plays his character, <laughs> yeah. this posh guy who stumbles his words, stumbles on his words sometimes, and who's has scruffy hair. He thinks he's he thinks he's hilarious, but it's just like yeah, this isn't funny, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. I that's suppose, the, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say I suppose now that he's morphed, right? So he starts off as being the joke in the same way that that Donald Trump was a joke in the same way that. Right wing, right wing authoritarians sometimes are seen as like fig- figures of um, well, they are figures of fun, right? Until they get into power, and then once they're into power, they're just speaking what is to affect their truth. Yeah. Like, like Donald Trump was uh, a figure of derision yeah. before he was ever what he became. Now, admittedly, he was never really in on the joke in the way that Boris Johnson. Yeah, completely. That's a really important distinction to make. But once you're there in one sense, you can't really be that person anymore because there is no one to mock. All you can do is do what he does and his shtick, but also be aware of the fact that that's okay. He'll just end up, as we've seen lately, like going onto like the nastier sides of his personality. Yeah. Like he was never, you know, Boris Johnson was never one to sit there and write columns, like righteously pulling down the powerful. He'd like have a pop at the EU commission because that's what his base wanted and it was an easily faceless person to go after. That's yeah. who he's always been, right? It's just at one point it was uh, much funnier, and now it's kind of, um, yeah, good on you, Boris. You're telling the truth. Yeah, it's rough stuff. 
and uh, this was like I a mean, really yeah. I... Why have we ended on such a sad note? It feels like we. <laughs> 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 Nish, that's, Nish, that's, you look so upset just then. You were like, "Oh my gosh, what is happening?" <laughs> it's, I just, yeah, it is difficult because you're like, and you know, it's like I'm going to do it. Hopefully, I'm doing a new tour show, and I'm certainly doing like some open air gigs and stuff like that. And it is difficult because you sort of, it is a really difficult point. Well, it's not a difficult point. It's just an interesting point to be at, where you start from a position of of going. I have to do something that people are going to laugh at, but I am genuinely, I am furious and I hold this man personally responsible for a lot of people dying. And the thing to, the, 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 but the thing to resolve is not to suppress that anger because you want to somehow do comedy that contains, that is really funny but still contains that genuine sense of burning anger. You don't want to do a joke that is can be that lets people off the hook. But at the same time, no one's come, no one's paying their money to come and listen to a man just scream without punchlines. So it's like it's just a, it's sort of interesting point to to be at the way that i am thinking about it at the moment is i keep saying on stage that i i i'm trying to resolve where where i'm at as a comedian who talks about the news and because for a long time i thought of myself as the like the band on the titanic like you just play on but that isn't what i do because there was no one on the titanic because the band on the titanic played beautiful music to distract people while they were dying but there was no one on the titanic just running around screaming oh my god the titanic is so fucked Oh God! <laughs> We're all gonna sink and drown. <laughs> and that's where I'm at at the moment. Is I'm trying to figure out what what function I play as an entertainer on the Titanic that is Britain in 2021. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm just seeing that film again, but that like really yeah. romantic <laughs> thing with Rose and Jack, but someone just screaming. We're all fucked like in the background. Just very <laughs> nasally voiced British Asian man. <laughs> Yelling about how everything everything's gonna die, just as you start to hear the first strains of that Celine Dion song. <laughs> oh, brilliant! It's fantastic. That was like a, a good place to good place to end. So, do we have any concluding thoughts before we move on to Jam of the Week? I'll, I'll start with you, Nish. Do you have any like kind of concluding thoughts? I mean, I I still uh, I am still undecided on the utility of uh, comedy about politics which is not ideal, <laughs> given my job. Yeah, given my career choice. Um, but, um, you know, at this point, I'm too far in to get retrain. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just have to just keep pressing on um, and, um, and hope that it, what... I guess you just have to keep pressing on and hope that what you're doing is offering some crumb of comfort to someone. I'm just seeing this. You know those, those adverts like about retraining? You're like, Nish doesn't know it yet, but he could be... <laughs> like, <laughs> I can retrain in cyber! <laughs> At last, oh. when will... <laughs> Asians leave the arts for jobs and technology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, you can't wait. Your mom's going to be able to say, yeah, my son works in IT. He works in IT. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gee, what are your concluding thoughts? Um, you know, Nisha, I think you do have value. That's basically what I <laughs> I think I think that's about it, buddy. Uh, <laughs> um, I slightly more. I think actually that's that's almost my entire point. Like I do think uh, politics does politics. Humor does do a great way of explaining issues. And even if you are to some extent speaking mostly to the converted, although I would say not always. Like there are always going to be people on the margins. You are informing them you are changing their their mind and you do get at the heart of like what are like very serious situations a very kind of uh, apt way so you spoke earlier about that rachel paris thing which is like a really brilliant way of um like mocking the view of men can't do anything anymore like it's just an absolutely um fantastic intro to it and otherwise that there have been great like jokes through history right they get to it like there's a soviet joke that goes um they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work <laughs> And it just encapsulated an entire communist system within like eight or nine words. You're like, that's absolutely brilliant. So, um, yeah, Nish, I think you're doing a great job. Well done, mate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my concluding thoughts are similar, right? Nish, I think you just need to stop being so hard on yourself because you are going to be the future prime minister one day. You're going to be leaving this country, man. So, like, you got to stop being so hard on yourself. You know, you go, you go places. We, we will believe in you. We will be- Everyone listening to this podcast believes in you. You're the future leader of this country. So, yeah, pull yourself together. <laughs> but on a, on, a more, on a more serious note as well, like, humour is so important for politics. Like, when I, again, when I was growing up, like, my formative years of engagement with politics was watching, like, you know, Mock the Week and was watching, you know, all those comedy shows. Yeah, eight out of ten cats where they were discussing kind of social and political issues. Those that those, that's how I spent my formative years, and that's how I, I really got interested in politics because they, you know, these you know comedians made politics and these kind of social issues really cool and interesting. And I do think comedians play a really important role in our in our political discourse because you know often, as I mentioned, the best comedy is comedy that punches up, is comedy that challenges. Um, you know, stereotypes and, and, you know, speaks up for marginalised groups and takes control of stereotypes about marginalised groups. That That's the best comedy for me. Um, and it's a clear punchline without comedy. And I don't think, you know, pro-government comedy about, especially about this government and in, in this current political moment we live in, I don't think it would sit well with many people. I don't think it would be very, very funny. And, and frankly, what is the punchline? Um, so, yeah, as soon as Nish gets into, into government, G and I will be making jokes about him as Prime Minister. So, <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned for that, guys. I mean, if the day, the I, that's the last thing you should be worrying about. Like, the, the, if I become Prime Minister, the first thing you need to worry about is stockpiling petrol for the imminent road war. <laughs> Like it's like if, if if you see me standing outside number ten, you're you're literally on a countdown. You're an hour away from Mad Max. That's what that's that's what I'm I love saying. that film. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Theron oh. should get the Clippers if I win the yeah. election. The second I win the election, get the Clippers, Charlie. <laughs> but what a fight for feminism, though, eh? It'd be brilliant. What? Right, it's a great moment. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, Nish, what is your your jam of the week? My jam of the week uh, it currently is uh, "Introvert" by Little Sims. 
um i was a really big fan of gray area um the album that she put out in 20 i think it's 2019 um and um but yeah i thought that was a great album and but i was absolutely blown away by this uh, the sort of orchestral sound on this song and uh, she's an incredible rapper and it just has made me very excited for the new album which i think is coming out in september but yeah it's great i mean it's it, it's the sort of lush orchestra sound coming in behind her it really feels like she's moved on to a kind of interesting and new sound yeah, she feels underappreciated to me. Is, or is that just my sense? I do feel like she's someone that, like, yeah, I think she's really, really good, basically. I She's great. I, I saw her in, um, I saw her at Glastonbury in 2019, and then I saw her again uh, in uh, Kentish Town in December of that year. And, um, you know, it was an unbelievable gig. And uh, she brought out Kano. And it was just, it was just a very exciting evening. And it was probably like, it's sort of December 2019. So maybe I've really like over romanticized it because it was like oh, one mate. of the last things that happened before the air got filled with poison. <laughs> We've all done that though. It's like, oh my gosh, that one time I was in the office in 2019. It's yeah, like, yeah. That, wasn't, that wasn't that fun. <laughs> <laughs> It's not, it's not what you used to say, Mike, but that's <laughs> God, I can't believe I'm here for... This podcast is your equivalent of rumours. It's just... It's <laughs> politics jam. Breakup album. No, I'm really messed up. Well, I can write some great art, which is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. That feels like a, a good place to end. Nish, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. It's been... An absolute pleasure having you on, and we yeah hope to have you on again at some point in the future. My pleasure, boys. Lovely to see you. Cool. See ya. Bye. <laughs>